everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 98 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about The Prisoner on your Be Seeing You podcast. I'm Andy Kay. And I'm Matthew Bose. This week, our guest is Abigail from the Prudence and the Crow podcast, Prisoner-esque, uh, which covers The Prisoner episode by episode and is an all-round superb TV and film recommending person. Abby, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good. <laughs> <laughs> We talked a, a while ago about what sort of thing you might want to come and chat about. And, and it's been a little while since we did TV. We sort of aired away from it because, well, Parks and Rec took a very long time to do. Uh, but The Prisoner was your, I'm not Specialist even sure, subject. holy grail. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the thing you... It's my precious. It, it you, is. You, you gave me some other options, but you said, but, but really The Prisoner. If you, okay, Matthew, if you talk I'm not to anyone you else, Matthew, you will be doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Which is not to say that I know all of the things, but my enthusiasm and 20 years of love for this take me some way. Okay, so, so this so, is your Buffy or Star Trek. Yes, although also Buffy, but <laughs> The Prisoner, I think, is, is uh, less. There are fewer podcasts, certainly. Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> so, so why The Prisoner? Where did this love of it come from? Uh, this came from, I think it was 1997, and I was on holiday with my now in-laws in North Wales, and uh, my father-in-law had a very strong suggestion, which is unusual for him because he's big on sitting in the car parks while other people go to monuments. Uh, he suggested that we should go to this place called Port Merriam. We didn't know what it was. We had not <laughs> thought about this. We went into this incredible sort of sixth, eighth scale pastel village and it was magical, and everywhere there were references to a television show that I had never seen. So we bought the videos, okay, and we went back, <laughs> and we watched 12 episodes, I think, that night. Uh, and then wow. we went back the next day and bought a lot of merchandise. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the beginning. And I have been to Port Marion a great many times since, um, where they have a channel that just shows the prisoner 24 hours a day. Oh, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. What sort of merch did you buy? Uh, I bought, that first time, I bought uh, books, pencils, badges. I was 15, so stationary. Nice. Uh, <laughs> and I think I bought the soundtrack, which I, I still have, which is a lovely thing. Uh, yes, um, and some fan fiction. So, sorry, you said you bought the soundtrack. How many different versions of Pop Goes the Weasel was on that <laughs> Just the one. <laughs> Just the one, Okay. So how did you come to it, Matthew? How did it get on the list? I, I think it has always been on the list. Like from the first time it got put together back in, what, end 2016, Mandy? I honestly don't even remember. I don't know who suggested it or where it came from. Had you heard of it, it before, Mandy? There. No, not even a little bit. Interesting. Because I... The, the thing, anytime anyone mentions The Prisoner, my thought is, oh, my dad loves that. Ah. <laughs> now, I have watched it. I have watched some of it, all of it, maybe one episode, maybe just the intro. But when I was like 10, mm. because it used to be on, presumably ITV, Channel 3, over the weekend, and at some point I would watch it. I think and they, they I don't think they showed it that many times, because it was really super hard to get hold of for a long time. Um, okay. But I think there was a time, certainly, at the... Early 90s when they ran through it, and I didn't really see it, but I remember my dad watching it through again. So, not about that, but uh, my dad was a yeah. huge fan of it. So, yeah. Yeah, so I think perhaps when that airing was on, I watched 
some of it because there were bits watching are like oh yeah no I've definitely seen this bit I know I've seen this bit but then others that I couldn't remember so I I have not like I don't have the best memory at the best of times so I have <laughs> no idea what I did and didn't watch at that point but it is all about like oh yeah my dad loves that mm. um and I think cool. it it definitely has a huge legacy I think we'll get to that later but certainly it does get referenced a surprisingly large amount for a one series British produced television show that hasn't been aired an awful lot Mm. I think when it was on in America it seemed to strike a chord with a very specific group of people some of whom now make our television and others of whom I think made the internet so yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) it's it's stayed resonant I think by virtue of perhaps a lot of those people yeah absolutely fair so Mandy you'd never heard of this you you've not watched it because it just was not even a an option to watch yes um, and, and I think, I mean, that's fair, not fair. That's true for me for a lot of British television. Because honestly, until like Doctor Who and Sherlock started gaining popularity in the States, I wasn't actually aware of British television at all. Ooh. I'm kind of very insulated. Um, and so this would not have been something ever that would have been anywhere near what I would have watched. Like, I don't even know what TV channel it might have been on for me to be able to have watched it at any point in time in my life. PBS affiliate at some point, I think, had it. I read stuff about Secret Agent and also this one, and so I keep getting confused. I think one of them was on CBS here in the States, like in while it was running, like its original run. Yeah. Um, It was on in Canada before it was even on here, weirdly, some episodes. um, Yeah. It was CBS because I read that one of the episodes didn't air. Yeah. Um, because CBS banned it. Yep. Um, so yes, that it was it was on CBS originally. Uh, the storied history of the prisoner. It's okay, a big I, history. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to give a little bit of history, um, and then we will get into some conversation. So, the prisoner is a 1967 TV series. It was co-created and starred Patrick McGowan. It ran for 17 episodes on ITV, which is Channel 3, and was at a time when English television only had three channels. So this was the third of the three. McGowan, am I saying that right? It is McGowan, isn't it? Yeah, as far as I know, yeah. Okay. McGowan was a force of persistence in getting the series made. He, as well as being the star, also wrote and directed several episodes. The series has long been credited as having a major impact on narrative pop culture in general, with its meta-story, depth of production, and requiring viewers to consider elements of the show differently than the norm, certainly at the time. And there's a huge amount of history that I could put in here, but like that is part of the mythos of this show, so I think we'll be convers- um, having a conversation about that elsewhere. So Mandy, do you want to tell us exactly what The Prisoner's about and, and <laughs> synopsis and obviously the details of everything about it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, no. So what I will do is tell you what the premise of the show is, which you will get in the opening credits if, if you watch it. Um, essentially, the main character is a secret agent who resigns from the agency that he works for in London and is planning on going on holiday and leaving town. And instead, people knock him out kidnap him take him to a recreation of his flat and he is imprisoned in this idyllic village until he spills the beans on why he actually resigned because whoever is running the village believes that he may have sold out or switched sides 
And that's the the opening two and a half episodes of every episode. <laughs> two and a half minutes. Yes. Well, yeah. except for two. But yes. Yeah, true. But yeah, they, they do remind us of that backstory every time, which is pretty much the only concession to what came before. But it is such a great opening sequence. Why wouldn't you mm. show it all the time? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. I am not a number. I am a free man. <laughs> and there's um, a lot in that opening monologue as well, I think. You know, it's, it is the previously on Buffy. I mean, and with very few reruns of the show, uh, again, because it's ITV and because... You know, in the 60s, I think we still had shorter viewing periods available. You would probably just get like one chance to see the episode. So Mm. that reminder is more valuable than perhaps now. See, I'm not even sure it's a a previously on. It's kind of, you know, Dr. Samuel Beckett stepped into the quantum leap accelerator (laughs) and vanished. Mm. It's that sort of setup, but it's so good because it's already got a bit of action, a bit of character, a bit of intrigue. And then we're into the episode. Yeah, it's like the In Every Generation. Yes. From Buffy. <laughs> okay. Uh, how was everyone able to watch this? Mandy, is it free to view over there? You guys, I cannot begin to explain how excited I was to discover that all 17 episodes are available on Amazon Prime. Amazing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was shocked. I mean, you can also rent it. Like, they have two versions. I don't understand why one is available for Prime and then there's one that you can just pay for. They seem to be identical, so of course I just did the one on Amazon Prime. Mm. Yeah, I had to buy it on Amazon Video. You couldn't even rent it. Oh, wow. Mm. Well, sure. It is not massively easy to get here, and, and I think that's one of the reasons that it's had that sort of cult aspect to it. Is It's been very on and off in production. Um, I bought specifically for this and considered it a mm. justification of this, uh, the 50th anniversary Blu-ray box set, which is a thing of beauty with a great many extras and delightful additional content. Nice. I, I think I'd like to see that. In, in the run-up to this, so I've been keeping an eye on TV listings in case anyone started showing it, having a look on eBay, saying like, okay, is it worth me just getting the DVDs instead of buying it on Amazon? And I almost did. I found one that was like £8. I thought, oh, that that's worth it. It turns out there was a release... I'm not sure if it's the 50th, but maybe the 45th or something, that are DVDs of just the extras. Yes, that's true. Yes. But the person did not mention that on the listings. It was only (laughs) when I was like, this is surprisingly cheap compared to normal. Let's have a look. Oh, no, it's just a thing with like, here's interviews with Patrick McGowan from 1977. I think they might have just uh, disassembled the DVD set because that is the final disc of the earlier DVD release, which I also have. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I have a few variations, including like three different VHS versions. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) Right, Mandy, had you seen Patrick McGowan in anything else? Absolutely not. Okay. Not even that one where he is the king of something. Oh, I've forgotten which one. Which is the film where he's the king of something? (laughs) Uh, Ridley Scott one. Is it The Last Kingdom? One of those big epic Ridley Scott films. It's one of the last things he did, I think. Um, I think it came out roughly around the time I started watching it. Anyway, I'm always surprised that he's in it because he he didn't make a lot of later stuff. Well, yeah, it says his last thing was Treasure Planet as a voice. Yeah, He was in Braveheart and A Time to Kill. He's in Braveheart. Kings and Desperate Men. Mm. Wait, he was in Braveheart and A Time to Kill? He was Longshanks, King Edward I. According to Wikipedia. Are you serious? (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm I'm badgering McGowan, Wikipedia. There's a good chance that's what I'm thinking of. Like something particularly famous. Uh, Time to Kill, Judge Omar Noose. Mm -hmm. 
holy freaking crap, are you serious? <laughs> we just did that movie on SF Pop. I had no idea. Holy crap. Okay, my mind just exploded. <laughs> I didn't look him up because I was like, I've never seen that guy's face before. I've never heard his name. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yes, I apparently do have experience of him. <laughs> and a great many episodes of Columbo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and well, that I definitely have not seen. Okay. Um, uh, you see, there is similar material. I think that's part of the conversation is the fact that the prisoner at the time, there was no similar material, but since it is almost the blueprint for similar material. Um, mm-hmm. So I might skip over that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I think that's, you know... A Are bit you going to mention uh, Danger Man? You see, I've not even seen Danger Man. So one of the nice things about the uh, mm. anniversary box set is it includes the two relevant episodes of Danger Man, oh, nicely yeah. restored. Uh, and there is one particular... So Danger Man is about a secret agent, and it's uh, very much the kind of life and times of the secret agent. It is sort of a almost a more Catholic response to Bond, I think. Mm. And in one particular episode, uh, he goes to an Italian village, Port Marion. Uh, and at the end of that series, he resigns. So there was uh, okay. significant speculation when The Prisoner started that it was a continuation of Danger Man. And one of the reasons that you didn't get the character name, the boring theory, is because they'd have to pay rights to the people who own Danger Man. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Patrick McEwen is very adamant that it is not a continuation, but yeah. the, other guy, the other guy who created it with him says it is. Yeah. It's hilarious. Patrick McEwen is marvelously, um, delightfully, gleefully, I think, cranky about uh, giving away the secret to it. And I, I think that he took the majority of it to, to the grave. He is very protective, very... Um, secretive and very much like you should watch the show if you want to know what it is about you should watch it and then you will know mm-hmm. and i'm pretty sure we'll get to that uh quite some time but there's there's certainly you know no mistaking the fact that he's not particularly different from danger mm-hmm. man and i think that that at least gave it currency at the time so it's certainly something they played on it makes me want to go maybe not watch the entire run of in, in the states, it was called Secret Agent, uh, um, but I mean, it was four seasons long. I think I'm, I'm not sure, sure it all survived. It, I I don't think I could be wrong, but I don't think it's all still in existence. Oh wow! I could be okay. wrong. There is some on YouTube. I'm pretty sure. Maybe I'll just go look up some clips on YouTube and see. It's it's really quite interesting. Yeah, I I definitely ran out of time. Um, trying to get in all 17 episodes i was frantically i am finishing impressed the last two episodes yesterday so <laughs> it, it really is a lot to, to take it i think that's one of the things i'd like to know about is what is it like to bulk watch this much prisoner i i can't imagine <laughs> <laughs> i mean like i say i i ran through a lot of it myself but you know i was 15 and had watched a lot less television by then so mm. there were two episodes that i largely skipped uh-huh um i ended up watching like the first 20 minutes and then like i don't like this episode let me go to the end and see what it actually has to do with the story that we're talking about in this show an interesting maneuver with this um well it was the the two i'm sure you can guess which two episodes it was living in harmony the wild west episode and then the the girl who was death oh wow 
episode that has nothing. I mean, neither of them have anything to do with the village until the end when you figure out like what is actually happening. Um, so yeah, I, I largely skipped both of those episodes and then I went back and read kind of what happened. Interesting. Yeah, Living in that Harmony is my second me... favorite episode, which oh, is not really? a normal opinion. I, I am aware, but uh, okay. I have strong feelings. Okay, before we dive into all that, we have one question we do need to have answered. Of course. Mandy, did you enjoy The Prisoner? I did, except for the previously mentioned two episodes that I skipped. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I really liked it. I told a lot of people about it while I was watching it. Um, uh, Joseph's parents were here, and I was telling them about it. And like, I pulled it up on Amazon and showed them which one it was so they could watch it on Prime if they wanted to. And Great. Um, I told my mom about it, tried to get Joseph to watch it. It's I enjoyed it. I found it fascinating. Okay, can you talk a bit more to that? When you say fascinating, is it possible to watch this and enjoy it as, oh yeah, this is a good show, or, oh, this is an interesting cultural artifact? I I didn't know um, the impact that this show had had on pop culture, and so I was watching it solely for what it was. Okay. Like, it was presented to me as a show from the 1960s, and that's how I watched it. And and so I enjoyed it, I think, for what it was, for what it was supposed to be at the time. So I I honestly think it's a good show. It had a good premise. It was delightfully wacky, slightly surreal and absurd at times, but enjoyable nonetheless. I think a lot of that speaks to the quality of it. It really does still hold up in a lot of ways. Mm. Like, it is interesting. And partially because there are so many questions. Like, we like TV like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it definitely felt like a precursor to a lot of the TV that we have now, but I didn't really get that feeling while I was watching it, Okay, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, I, I went into it very apprehensive because I tend to not enjoy things from the 50s or 60s, as we've talked about extensively on this show. Why haven't I watched a lot of things? It's because they're old, <laughs> you know? And so I was a bit apprehensive and... It was definitely, I mean, you could look at it and tell it was made in the 60s, but it was also made really, really well. And it, yeah, I I would encourage anybody who hasn't seen it to watch it. I'm so pleased to hear that. <laughs> uh, Abby, can I ask the same questions, but can you cast your mind back to when you first watched it that first time in the late 90s? Like, how oh, did it appeal to you at that time? Did you, did you love it? Were you just intrigued? I absolutely, instantly utterly adored it um okay. i knew i was going to from the moment i was in the village i've never i had never been anywhere like that i don't think i'd ever left the uk at that point okay and it was one of the first times i'd ever been somewhere uh completely separate it's such an odd little place to be um and you you really do have it's exactly as it is in the prisoner very little has changed um and you do have that beautiful estuary, which is incredibly quiet. Um, and we went there. It was raining. There were very few people there. Um, there, w- there was something of a prisoner renaissance here during the Britpop years. Um, and it was just starting to, you know, people were just beginning to remember that it was a real place and you could go there. So as a tourist attraction, it was sort of starting to reach out a little bit from your really devoted visiting fan. Um but not on this particular day. And it was just so quiet and so magical. And so I knew, even before I started, that I would be so excited to see a show set in this place. 
Patrick McGoon's incredible. He's precisely the kind of actor I find compelling. Um, I think the only modern actor I would compare him to might be Michael Fassbender. We have a long running mm. conversation where if there was a film, it would have to be Michael Fassbender or nobody. Um, because he's he's very still, he's very peculiar, and he's he knows everything that is going on, uh, but doesn't necessarily tell you. And whether it's in a book or a TV or in a film, that is a quality I enjoy. I love that the prisoner is telling you exactly the story it wants to tell you with with no compromises and no how comfortable is it. There's very little hand-holding. It's not an easy watch in the sense that if if you just have it on, if you don't go to it, you won't get anything from it, I think. Uh, so I saw the right show at the right time, the aesthetic, the excitement, the peculiarity. And I could also very clearly see the influence around me in people who happened to be making things at that time in the kind of mid to late 90s. Um, I was also very into 60s culture and uh, things like the round chair, um, the Ericophone style phones. I okay. had some understanding of those. So <laughs> aesthetically, I mean, I just bought a lava lamp because I was 15. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it was all, it was everything. It it was the right thing at the right time for me. Um and because I could see it being referenced around me, I felt very kind of in on the conversation. Um, one of my favourite bands released a concept album uh, in 1998. So I just really got into this show. And then my favourite band at the time released a concept album called Six, around, based entirely around The Prisoner, which was just a weird experience. It felt very current for something so old. Uh, so when I found out that American television, you know, by the time I started watch- watching Lost and looking at Smoke Monster and so on, and then seeing that that had had an influence over there as well and in the early days of the internet and the early forums and IRC and all of that kind of the early online incarnation of the prisoner fan club that mm. that whole uh very kind and very present fandom all of these things were just right there right then so whilst it was only about 30 years old then it was already feeling current and exciting again and like it was something i should be participating in I'm not sure what the original question was now. I feel like I might have come away from that. Well, an extension to that question, and I know you don't have a frame of reference for this, does it make it different watching it having been to Port Merion? Uh, for me, yes. Okay. For me. Um, and I, I think it's it's something I've talked a lot about with uh, with Pegs uh, for our podcast. She's she's very keen on like looking at how the show uses the environment. So, you know, mm. he'll go down a hill and then come out at the top of the hill, you know, the way it's all cut together, the way it, it works. Um, and the way it kind of reflects uh, Clough Williams Ellis, who who built the village, his um, his concept of it as well. I, I think it, it really works with the space in a way that I have not seen many places do that. So, Sometimes when uh, the show takes place outside the village, I find that a little more jarring to come back to now than I did originally. I think originally I was I was so on a roll with it, uh, sort of led through my understanding of the village that I just, I think I coasted through those episodes that aren't set precisely in it. Uh, whereas now I find it a little bit stranger that it does kind of move away. In terms of watching it and looking at how it's put together, I had that exact same reaction when he gets back to London. As soon as he's in London, I'm like, oh, okay, so that's Marble Arch. So now he's here. Okay, he's outside <laughs> that statue. Okay, so that's down the road from. I see that I love. I mean, mm. London less so, I think, because I, I think, again, because I know London so well, I am a Londoner. It's, mm. It is something else I understand. And I think that that 
also gave it an exciting grounding. But I think it's sort of when you get more like the uh, the fairground episode or living in harmony and, and it takes it right out for a longer period of time. I think that's particularly strange. Okay. Okay. So the, the pop culture conversation is the big one. Uh, we all like this show. And just put my hand up. I like this show as well. It's great fun. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> good. Mandy, you've put together a great list of pop culture. So do you want to talk a little bit to uh, the impact of The Prisoner? Yeah, I was absolutely floored when I started. Because um, you guys know that I wait until after I've seen something to start Googling it. Because <laughs> I don't want to be spoiled. I want to go into it blind. The only thing I Googled while I was watching it was the trampoline wrestling sport. And <laughs> so I had no idea that this was the foundation for so many of the things that we love today. We wouldn't have Twin Peaks if this show had never aired. Lost was so hugely, and hugely, I don't, that's not a word, <laughs> so hugely inspired by The Prisoner. Abby, you mentioned The Smoke Monster. Um, mm. That was directly inspired by The Rover. And I, I was reading a book or pages from a book that just went over and over so many different references that are embedded and lost that came directly from the prisoner. J.J. Um, Abrams is a huge fan, and, and he put um, references to it in Alias as well. And God, the, the big one for me is Joss Whedon was a huge fan, and he has gone on record and said that number six is the best television character of all time. And there were references in Buffy that I would never have known came from anything. I thought they were just out of Joss's mind. Um, at the end of the season two episode, Halloween, when Ethan Rain leaves the shop, he leaves a note behind and the note just says, be seeing you. When that aired here, I like I literally screamed. I was <laughs> so excited. I could not believe that my favorite show now is referencing my favorite ever show. What? <laughs> so exciting. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I probably, if I had known, I would have been just as excited. Um, and then in season four, there's an episode called The Initiative, which is the first time we see inside the hangar. And there are these two giant white balls that look like the rover just hanging in there. And the original name of that episode was Secret Agent Man, <laughs> which is a direct reference to Danger Man. Because I did not know that. Secret Agent here. Um, and I, I think that's fantastic. Uh, Battlestar Galactica, which is actually the show that inspired me to start this podcast. Um, the Cylon number six was named after number six. Um, the Simpsons. I've never watched The Simpsons, but I was astounded at the sheer list of references that they mm. had for The um, Prisoner. Uh, McGowan actually was in an episode as number six at some point. Oh, that's fantastic. I saw, a cl I didn't actually click play, but I saw a screen grab of um, Homer on a raft that looked exactly yeah, like the raft that, that, that number that six had built. Yeah. Even Pinky and the Brain had a three <laughs> arc story based on the prisoner. Really? Like, yes. Wow. <laughs> I was completely shocked by that one. SpongeBob has had references to it. Um, the Archers has done it. DC Comics, Hercules, the, the Kevin Zorbo show, Hercules has referenced it. Fringe, uh, Babylon 5, Doctor Who, Ready Player One even. And I didn't even pick up on this. I've read the book. I've seen the movie twice. And the fact that the the villains give up their names to become numbers and they're called Sixers. Yeah. Like It didn't even occur to me that that would be a reference to this. And it's... 
it just blows my mind that this television show that I had no idea existed is directly responsible for so many of the things that I love now. Yes, yeah, so very much. I think people referencing it, for me, it's, it speaks to the fact they want to kind of show, I have learned from this thing. Because mm-hmm. for me, over and above all, all of the, okay, cool, you know, seeing this thing in Buffy, this thing in Doctor Who is awesome. The impact it has on narrative storytelling is probably the the most interesting bit. Like, without this, we, we don't have uh, The Twilight Zone. We don't have a, a lot of modern TV. And there's kind of three things that particularly for me follow on. I mean, very clearly, J.J. Uh, Abrams was a huge fan. Mm-hmm. And, and lost exactly like you're saying. There, there is a lot that, like, okay, he's kind of just lifted that and copied it in homage. Let's give him a break for that. Even Alias, there is a lot about this show that I was watching like, oh, this is exactly like that episode in Alias where suddenly they turned it and did something different. Oh, this is like the way they did that. Like, J.J. Abrams, I think, learned from this about how to tell kind of long stories that kept people interested. I I, think so. (laughs) I think perhaps he should have learned keep them wanting more. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, maybe a discussion for another podcast. But more recently, Westworld is the one. I, I think the fact that Westworld does all of its storytelling without giving you any answers and every story is an interesting character piece and then eventually you have to put it together yourself. Like even the end of that first season, it does not really tell you what the man in black is and his link to the other things we've seen that are, are linked to that without wanting to spoil if no one's seen it. Um, <laughs> right. But I think you can almost draw a direct line from this to... Uh, some 80s shows, but particularly the people who would have seen this growing up and then, like you said at the beginning, Abby, people getting to make TV now, people getting to make Alias, Lost, Westworld and so on. I feel like it opened the can of, of possibility of a, mm. a different kind of viewing experience from, yeah, all of the other narrative experiences. And I do think it was an outlier of a show for a long time. Mm. Um, and... It's, you know, when things become a cult thing for for a long period of time, um, and I don't even know if that's something that can happen in this day and age where all the fans of something, no matter how small, can all find each other simultaneously. Mm. Um, You know, the Prisoner fandom was was fostered over a really deep desire to just enjoy the conversation about the show and the investigation into the details. I mean, the details, the story of the making of the show is still something that is is fascinating, even to people who've been fascinated by the same thing for 30 years. It never stops being fascinating um, because it's such an open book of a story. And I also think that, so watching, watching it back to do this podcast and my own, um, in this time that we're living in in this day and age watching it back is a really different experience from watching it five years ago 10 years ago 15 Mm -hmm. and 20 um and i feel that it has because it doesn't limit itself too much it it keeps itself so open it can continually be relevant so as people came to this cult show and saw the references you know there was there was a new flock when when lost uh do you remember when uh Damon Lindelof and Carlton Coos used to do their Lost podcast. I remember them talking about it on that mm. a lot. And there was kind of a new pull into the present fandom all over again. Okay. You know, you go to Port Marion and there would be a lot more Americans than there have been. Um, <laughs> and you would find that just gently opening up. It's it's a really evolved uh, fandom, which I think has 
allowed it to be influential uh, without necessarily having to be kind of direct referencing it. it. It just, it opens your mind as to a different possibility. It's a very 1960s thing in that way. It's kind of horizon expanding rather than just kind of, here's this really cool character that you could write about. Yeah, because in some ways that's the thing that almost lets it down now. There are concepts in here that definitely in the 60s and pretty much for the 30 or 40 years hence or from then would have been oh you know this constant surveillance and who do you trust who do you not trust and now we live in a digital age with constant surveillance (laughs) and a lot of the tech they were putting on there is not too dissimilar from stuff people do now experimenting with lasers and using noise to treat people medically and uh, using computers for education well the the distance learning aspect is (laughs) well (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> really an entertaining one for us all. Um, but I, I think just as we... You know how quickly number six gets used to the idea that there are cameras in this house and mm. everyone is watching him because because of the job. So what I really like about how that storytelling transfers to now, whilst it may have been new technology to the audience, number six, not massively phased. It, you know, it starts right mm. in the first episode. Here are photographs of you doing all these things. He is aware that he's always been being watched. So it isn't new to him. But it's where do you go from there? When you know that you're always being watched, when you have a secret and you're always being watched, what do you do with that? And I think that that is a question that is still really exciting now. If you have a secret, even though everybody can find out everything about you, but they can't find out your motive. I think that's still relevant. Mm. Yeah, the only thing that he had that was really his in the whole story was his himself, his mind. That was the one thing that they tried so hard to get into and to break. Yeah, he yeah. didn't even have his own name. Right. Or use it. Mm. But, but he... Yeah, there's that one thing that for all the technology, they still can't see. And and I just, I don't think that you would need to change any element of that story technologically for it to work. And I think for something that's this old now, I think that's remarkable, given how technologically focused it is, for that not have dated. And I, I really don't think it has. I think is just remarkable. I quite like... Uh... That this is kind of the best place for him to go to. The, the the structure of pretty much every episode is they come up with a scheme. The new number two comes up with a scheme to uh, get this secret from him. And they enact it. And it possibly works. But he is such a miracle of a man. He is able to overcome and defeat them. And you get a real sense that he's enjoying it. Like all yeah. their efforts and this kind of scheming game, you know, move and counter move stuff is exactly what he's good at and where what he's there for. I think if this was remade, if we had Michael Fassbender as number six in a new version, you'd have to see a lot more of internal struggle, a lot more of him trying to adapt to it and understand it. Because I, th- I think we need to empathize and emote with him a lot more, whereas certainly in this period and in this sort of style of TV, it is just great to watch such a capable man be awesome on TV. See, I don't I don't think really, I mean, much as I, I talk mm. about the idea, and I know Patrick McGuinn thought about uh, doing a film at various points, I don't think there's any more that you can add, and I think that The Prisoner is already stretched beyond original intent. Mm. I, mm. I don't think a retelling would, would improve it, and I... 
I mean, I'm sure we'll get to this a bit more with some of the other things coming up, but I, I don't think more conversation and more empathy with number six would make it a better show. For me, it would have to be a different sort of character to work as a modern show. It's perhaps In which case, why not make a new show? <laughs> well, oh, absolutely. But <laughs> there is always the temptation to trade on a beloved fandom. Because mm. this apparently had huge viewing figures. Like everyone was waiting for that finale and yeah. to see what happened. Like To hear my dad tell the story, you know, as you know, the pub was empty mm. and then the pub was full. That's, right, okay. you know, <laughs> no more British way of describing Six's television than that. Yeah. <laughs> so like, this was a proper event that a lot of people saw. Yeah. And and I think that's part of why it's had such an impact. I remember them comparing, you, you remember how uh, the Lost finale was the first uh, worldwide simultaneous airing? Mm. Um, and I remember that being talked about it, uh, with reference to uh, the finale of The Prisoner, you know, that, that finale feeling. Um, hadn't necessarily been been experienced since, and you can argue that one, I think. But yeah, yeah, I think in terms of a television program, it's yeah. so rare, isn't it? Oh, only sport and like royal weddings. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that I actually wanted to bring up this is not in the outline. Um, I kept feeling like this show is a little bit like Firefly. In some ways, because it looked to me like one, and and this was later confirmed when I did a little bit of reading, it was not filmed and produced in the order that it was aired. No. And I don't think it completely aired in the order that it was intended to. Nope. (laughs) Um, And and I find that fascinating. And I'm wondering if... I'm wondering if my experience of it would have been different if I had seen it as Patrick McEwen, McEwen, however you say his name, intended. Because think- part of it for me, I felt very much like, with the exception of a few of the episodes at the beginning and then the last two, all of the middle episodes felt very interchangeable to me. Like you could have just plopped them in and out wherever. But at the same time, there was a, definite tonal shift between the first half and the latter half mm. even leading into that final episode where we finally kind of picked back up on that whole story i mean there were several episodes in the middle that didn't even address why he resigned and number two trying to break him they were just there for filler so i have because- I, that is exactly exactly what they are um so i think originally they wanted precise number of aids me i think it was 11 episodes and the final episode was what became the penultimate episode and itv tried to push patrick mcgurn into a second season and uh, you know earlier when they were saying that jj abrams could learn the lesson about tell a shorter story mm. um, <laughs> patrick mcgurn was very keen not to overdo this he said you know there is only so much story here and i know it i know what the story is but it's not that long and i want to do one season and have it finished and they bargained him through to nine, uh, 17 episodes uh, instead of the 22 that ITV wanted and the 11 that he wanted. And you do get these um, slightly more externally written episodes. You know, um, there are some, there's one where Patrick McGoon's away filming uh, Ice Station Zebra, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and and he's, he's barely present. And, and that's a particularly different episode, which almost kind of takes advantage of his absence to try and give you more character context, which is particularly interesting to me. 
Um, and yeah, it's they are they are literally filler episodes, um, which aren't necessarily contributing to the overall arc. But when you were watching it week on week, it was yeah, it was just filling the gap, keeping the conversation rolling, pulling you through towards that finale. Um, there is a lot of conversation about the order in which you should watch them. There are multiple suggested different orders depending on what you want from it. Uh, I think American television had one order. Japanese television did something completely different. There are various different orders on box sets and all sorts of things, um, which can be really confusing. If you, you know, I had one set of videos that had them in a completely different order, which gave me a very different timeline through watching things. And mm-hmm. so when I try and refer to something from episode three, I'm now slightly lost <laughs> as to which three it is. Um as I, I think I said to Matthew, uh, which do, do we know which order Mandy's going to have? Because America used to uh, have a different canon order of things, but I believe Amazon right. has stratified that a bit. So, yeah, I think we all got the same one in the end. But it's, it oh, is a really so. interesting conversation. Yeah, because afterwards I realized, I had noticed that there was, a, there were a few number twos that came back more than once. Um, the the first one and and the last one were essentially the same with the Leo McKern I think was his name yeah and then we had there was one in the middle who who was in two episodes as number two they were not two episodes in a row apparently they were filmed in a row mm. and I remember being confused because that seemed so out of not out of character but kind of out of place because they had gone through so much effort to have a new number two in every episode and then to have one come back but not address that he had been there before and there's a lot of kind of discontinuity in the episodes you know there'll be bits where they reference something that you haven't seen yet i'm pretty sure but or halfway through they're still saying he's new in the village yes (laughs) (laughs) or when in the chimes of big ben they say he's been gone for months and you think well this is episode two (laughs) but Mm. then by the time you get to episode three he's only been there a couple of weeks i in the in the scheme of things i don't know if it matters because because the linear thread is because the character doesn't change that much there, the arc is is not as pronounced as it might be in other shows. So whilst I think the convenience of, of like you say, if you're going to have the same number two in, in two episodes, it would be best to mention that and to kind of pick that up. Um, but I, I think The Prisoner kind of skips out on on that sort of convenience entirely. And because it makes such disregard of that, I think in a way it, it sort of signposts you to the fact that it's also going to do that narratively. I think at least it is consistently inconsistent. I would agree with that. You know, I think I think we consistently got the story that the village and number two was there to try and break him and every time they were going to fail, but also every time number six was going to fail in his escape attempt. And that's really all we needed. Everything else was just kind of fluff or, you know, extra and didn't really impact it. And so it's okay that it was all out of order and that they reference things that you wouldn't expect them to reference yet. Um, I don't think it negatively impacted my viewing of it at all. It was just something I noticed. And the it's most recent. Yeah. And, and that's why it, it made me think of Firefly because Firefly was very much the same. I don't think and, I knew that about Firefly, but it does explain perhaps why a different podcast, but maybe why I found that more complicated to get to grips with than I'd expected. Yeah, that's all. 
Looking at the difference between production order and airing order, which I think it's basically airing order that we ended up watching, the one that stands out for me as being much better in the way they edit and the way they made it was Many Happy Returns, Mm. Um, which comes not quite halfway through. I think it's about episode seven in the way it's aired, but it was made as like almost the second to last or something. It would have come very late on. And I think Mm. this is one of the things that reminds me of Alias so much is it's just suddenly you get this episode, you've sort of settled into the routine. Okay, they've come up with some scheme to do with hypnosis or computers or drugs or something. And they're going to try it on him to see what happens. And then suddenly there's an episode that is fundamentally different and you don't know what's going on until the very end. And it just, it breaks you out of, oh, that show's doing something really quite interesting here. And I think that helps it, helps so early on to go, actually, yeah, the show is very clever and is really good. It's not just week on week him batting back whatever move the the, the organization, agency is doing against him, the number two is doing against him. Mm. Um, I don't think there's any other particular changes that stand out. But when that episode happened, Mandy, did what did you think watching suddenly the island is empty? The island? The village is empty. <laughs> I refer to it as an island in my yeah. head the entire time. Suddenly it he's on like Oahu. Yeah. <laughs> no, honestly, when you... Um, side note, when when you're in Port Marion, there is more or less just one road that connects you to the mainland. It is a, like a little outcrop of North Welsh headlands. And it, it really feels like an island. You can go right up to the top of the mountainous part behind the village, and see the estuary all the way around. And there's one field that kind of joins it at the back, and there's one road that takes you um, down into into the, the actual village where people live. Um, so it, it really is not dissimilar to an island. It feels that way. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I will not correct myself next time, because clearly I'm going to do this again. <laughs> Man, <laughs> so when you got that episode and suddenly it's empty and... It's it's very different. It looks like he's just back eventually. Um, how how did you find the episode? How did you react to it? Um, I actually think that was one of my favorite episodes. Mm. I went into it thinking, okay, obviously this is a plot from number two to try and break him, but I don't understand how it's going to end up working. Okay, And I think the way that they did it was unexpected, but it completely worked for me. I was surprised that um, the woman in his flat was actually number two, um, especially because I recognized her. Wasn't she in, um, I mean, I'm sure they reuse actors so many in this, but she was one of the women who was in the dream sequences in that one episode, in A, B, and C, wasn't she? Or am I completely making that up? Um, I think she might be. She certainly looks... That way, um. so I well, so that I was actually more confused about that because I would see people's faces again and be like, I wonder if they're the same character or not. Actually, no, I don't think it so, is. I don't think it is her, but I do think that that part of the reason that she is so um, that you don't suspect her is because she is mildly generic in in the sense of women you've already met in the show. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. Um, I think they did it brilliantly, mm. setting her up to be number two, and then that reveal at the end was was fantastic. Um, both of the times where they revealed the woman as being the real number two were done 
spectacularly and I actually didn't see it coming in in either instance and I'm so, and so pleased I was, that you didn't see it coming it makes me I really happy I, really <laughs> I usually do I usually see things like that and I just I didn't at all and this particular episode I was so happy for him that he was actually in London and that he was getting to see um you know his house his car I was mildly confused about the the people that he went to because they were different than the bosses he went to and the first time he thought he escaped which was just a whole other thing um and this, and does I he knew... go to his fiance's father and is this the one where he does that no that's or is that that's the, the body one? switch the one. body switch one yeah <laughs> oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry <laughs> um so i i knew he wasn't going to be successful i just didn't know how and i i found myself very interested in how we were going to get there because i mean like i said i just it was done well enough that it wasn't predictable other than knowing what the final outcome is going to be like the journey itself in every single episode was fresh and new for me does that make sense perfect sense perfect Mm, i I do think the variety even where the episodes are filler um the variety of of tropes they take on and concepts they take on. I love that it goes through, just as we expect a television now, the only thing we're really lacking is a musical, and I am a little bit sad that there is no Prisoner (laughs) musical episode. But there we are. (laughs) Maybe we can, like, revamp the show as a musical, you know. That's possibly... He doesn't dance, though. No, but everybody else does. (laughs) You know, with the umbrellas, I can see it now. But but this is a good point to talk about the women of the show. Yes, uh, it's very interesting for the sixties. There there is no, no, there's not no. There is very little male gaze, and I think where it exists, it's because we're in the point of view of a character who would do that because they're a bit skeevy. Um, I'm thinking particularly the girl who was death. Mm. Uh, we have that a couple of times, but it's you know weird guys on a cricket village green. Um, I and, I have some real content to bring to that. Yeah, go on. Um, so Patrick McGowan is uh, fairly famous for his dislike of sex and violence on television. Um, the violence part, I think, we'll come to in a bit, which is an interesting consideration. But he was absolutely adamant that he didn't want uh, number six to be the Bond character in, in the sense of, of a womanizer. Um, mm. He wanted uh, that character to encounter women as he would everybody else. Uh, he has, I think, aspects of the kind of gentlemanliness that we might expect, but not significantly more so. You know, it, it's never over and above. You know, it's it's not so much so that he would like plaudits for it. But there's there's a really interesting part in one of the earliest episodes where there was a suggestion that he might. Um, in the script, there was a suggestion that he might be attracted to a woman there. And Patrick McGoon was so adamant that this would not be the case that he cast his daughter to play this woman okay. <laughs> so that there would not be a chance of that being read into it. Um, I also really like that where there is the possibility of a love interest, age-wise, the women are his age. Mm. And I think that when you compare that with a lot of television that would follow uh, that is absolutely marked. You know, the women in this show who surround him, who interact with him, are almost always his peers rather than anything else. Um, those those are my 
parts there, but I, I think they wrote some wonderful parts for women which were not uh, particularly separate from those written for men. There are some mm. incredible theatre and screen actresses who have parts in there. And I, I think the idea that the government, of course it would employ women to try to break him. Of, of course it would. They're employing anyone to try to break him. Um, you know, they're best people. I think we we can talk about kind of racial casting as something that's not particularly varied. Um, but then this is a sexist concept of British government. The village has some diversity within it. Um, and we do have a lot of people from other European countries in particular, which is quite interesting. Um, and we have, yeah, what I really, really like about the women in the prisoner is that by and large, where there are men, there are women. So mm. the scientists, the doctors, the operators of various technologies and indeed the number twos where there are men there are women and just as he has very close kind of confidant scenes with women so he will also have them with men yeah completely agree that's a wonderful way of putting it all <laughs> good yeah. i mean but how, how did you find it mandy did you find it uh, surprising or particularly different or were you expecting kind of a more bond-like approach to women Initially, my expectation was it was going to be more Bond-like because that's just what you expect from 60s secret agent. Did you find fiction. it sort of markedly different from perhaps other television that you might have watched though, in, with regard to the handling of female characters? I did. I think the way that you put it is definitely um, better than the way I was feeling about it because you're right. Absolutely. Where there was a man, there was a woman doing the same job. Um, my initial thought on it though, was that still in almost every case, the number two that we see on screen is a man, except for the, the one episode with the carnival, the other two instances where we know there was a female number two, we didn't know she was number two until the end. And then she didn't come back as number two. And so we still didn't get to see the woman in that position of power. We got to see the woman pretending to be a maid or an observer or a stranger who lives in his house. That was part of the surprise. Right. And I mean, the surprise was fantastic. I'm I'm not saying that wasn't good writing. But but she doesn't get to sort of live in that part until the end. That's true. That's a really good point. Um, But at the same time, it's still light years ahead of anything else that would have been done in the 60s god it's light years ahead of things that are done now yeah Mm. yeah i like the surprise because i do like some of it for the contrast it gives the men are often very arrogant about what they're doing and i think that comes from you know they they are successful in whatever they do and that's why the organization has given them this shot um but it's always, oh, I'll get this computer and do this thing and I'll do this experiment or or something on him. Whereas mm. the women are, no, I am going to go and do that thing. But I, I li- have a scheme. I do like that it is rarely, and again, McGoon's influence, it's rarely sexually orientated. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I think also, even even in the earlier episodes, um, I I always think it's really interesting watching the scenes where he is angry with women. Because I think there are very few men who can act it in that way that is so neutral. I, I just I, I find it really interesting to watch where he is he is demanding information from the woman who is his maid. I think it's in, in the very first episode. Um and he is simply 
furious, but he is not sexually aggressive. He doesn't make aggressive moves based on her gender. He doesn't try to overpower her. I'm not saying it's necessarily respectfully violent or anything like that, but I do think that there is something very different about him as a secret agent character from the 60s. I think that a scene like that, where he is objectively angry with the person in front of him, but I think that he treats the women in the village just as the men in the village. I really Mm. see a consistency in the way that he treats characters, regardless of their gender. Yeah, I actually kind of appreciated the way that he treated the the woman who was brainwashed to be in love with him. Mm. Like he he never took advantage ever of that, and it wasn't it, you never felt like he might. It, there was no sense of temptation, temptation or anything right. like that. And once he understood, like initially he was very almost like rude to her. Yeah. Um. But once he figured out that this was something that they had done to her, that that she genuinely believed he was kind to her, even though he never you know advanced his own affections toward her. No. He he still he treated her like a person, and lesser writers, lesser actors would have done that very, very differently. Very dangerously as well, I think. The temptation mm-hmm. to have him start to form a relationship with her or something, but there is there is no there is no question that as soon as he understands that she has not consented to these feelings, that he would move past that in any way or take any advantage mm-hmm. of that. It right. it's not even an element of that character. And I think that to convey that as a not unattractive male actor is very interesting. A kind of, um, I don't know, almost a moral trustworthiness, which I think when you look at the whole of that character is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I think that there are um, less stable and less moral elements of that character, which is sort of a separate conversation. But in terms of, the way that he understands women and sexuality and um, sort of that kind of behavior, I think he is extremely focused on what is what is right, what is wrong, and what his role is um, in those situations, which, again, I just, I think that that is what happens when you get somebody who is showrunning, you know, he's the actor, the writer, director, producer, for so many of these episodes or has such an integral role to play. I feel like his his singular view on that really guides that thing. And there's plenty of, of uh, anecdotes about him kind of arguing this through or doing down bits where other writers were like, can we not sex it up a bit? Can you not just, you know, can they not take their clothes off more? And he's just like, no, that is not this show. Go to a different mm. show. This show, right. my way. <laughs> it's very interesting to me that the only time the character of number six um, kisses a woman is in the episode where he was gone and it was the um, the other man. His mind was in the yeah. other body. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's no coincidence. Right. Um, I, I think that I read that they did a lot of script changing after he was gone. Yeah. In that episode. <laughs> and, and I didn't get to read what le- like the consequences of that were and how he felt about it, but it just seemed a little bit shady. It's. I think it's. It's really interesting. I must say though, I think the performance and I forget the actor's name, but I do think the performance is remarkable. And I love a body swap episode. Like I love that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this is one of my very favorite examples. Apart from the Buffy and Faith one, I think this is the one. Like the guy who does it is just. He's remarkable. I love it. Yeah, it was fantastic. I never once 
was watching him on the screen not saying that's number six. Right, exactly. Like, it, he just was. Yeah. Somehow, it's it's a really interesting thing because, you know, in a way, he's a mildly generic-looking other actor, but he's mm. done his homework and mm-hmm. such is the performance that I just, I think it really comes through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it really helps that the other actor is built and looks so different to Patrick McGowan. It would have been easy to have someone else who was just suave in a suit. But this is a very different sort of chap, and he still does it well. Yeah. And it makes mm-hmm. the storytelling so interesting. And you, mm. because you as a viewer believe it, you believe it when those around him begin to understand and believe it too. Yeah, yeah. So now, I mean, you mentioned Body Swap and, and Buffy and Faith, and so now I'm also thinking about other things that both shows have done. And, and of course, I'm thinking of the doppelganger, you know, when we had the episode yeah. number six and number 12. And, of course, Buffy had willow and vamp willow and i like my brain is happy when i get to think about these two things at the same time it's and, and, it's so worth it it's, uh, it's so worth guiding your sort of thoughts through that because i i don't think it's a mis- it's an accident right yeah it, uh, even more than that it puts me in mind of um the, the xander split episode the good xander and bad xander <laughs> oh yeah and that's the sort of yeah. thing we see a couple of times in this is trying to be like okay there's actually two aspects to him and what are we seeing and what's going on mm-hmm. yeah i mean while, while we're looking at the kind of different episodes are there any more episodes that um either of you would like to pick out from kind of the general run before we get into the sort of the home straight of the episodes is there anything else that kind of really stands out for you as particularly engaging i I was going to mention Many Happy Returns as being my favorite episode, um, just largely in part because I think for the first 20 minutes, number six didn't say a word, and it was still completely <laughs> oh, <sh>. compelling. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it was still completely compelling, Absolutely. and I, know, I loved I it. Like, his his facial expressions, the way that he moves his body, you know, just everything about it, and, and for it to still work so well, um, I think that's why I really liked that one. And just from from a more storied perspective, I think my favorite episode was God. I cannot remember which one, uh, what the name of it was, um, but it was the one where basically he spent the whole time playing number two, like he knew that they were watching. It was the one where he went and got the six records and just okay. listened to them because he knew they would think it was weird. And and he did the blank sheets of paper and, and all of that stuff. It was fantastic just watching him because he had the smirk on his face the entire time <laughs> because he knew he was just doing it to just, you know, mm. try to Wind break number two. Up. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Hammer into Anvil, I think is probably my favorite. And I think that that's Ooh. partially because it has this, it, it's one of the only ones where we see he is having a reaction to what they're putting him through. And and he has gone on the offensive. I think that's that's what I would expect to see if this was done in a in a modern fashion is something about okay, what is he actually thinking? What's he actually going through? Rather than just he's enjoying it and playing them, it it is great to see him setting this up because you know exactly what he's doing. You know what the setup is, and you can see number two buying into it and questioning everyone and getting more paranoid as it goes on because he clearly works in a very paranoid organization that is all about people climbing over each other. Mm-hmm. it's very cleverly done and, and it works again just to show how good the character is how smart he is but also working the system differently than we've seen elsewhere and it's great yeah yeah and it is it again it feels very different thematically from the episodes we've seen previously you know mm. it, it starts in such a different 
way and it, it it keeps you not knowing what the show is and where it's going you know it's not a long show but the variety it gets in in that time is quite something hmm. I, and i will say i did enjoy the girl who was deaf but i think part of that is because she puns all the way through it <laughs> and that really, really does appeal does. to me <laughs> <laughs> i love a good pun but i i do want to say as well mandy i'm so pleased to to hear you kind of highlight many happy returns because i i do sometimes you know when i think about what people take from the prisoner i think that they miss something like television with no script for such a huge period of time i think it is really beautiful remarkable television and the kind of thing that you can sort of almost feel the network going sorry did you did you know i can't hear anything (laughs) you know Um, and they're like, yes, this is a design, this is a plan. And I, I think it's really beautiful. It's it's the episode I probably remember most clearly as well, I think. Um, I think you, you almost get more out of number six in that episode than you do in all the other episodes because you see mm-hmm. what happens when there are no external influences, literally. I think it's right. a really interesting one in that way. So I'm, well, I'm think- so pleased that you found that. Yeah, I think for me, that episode also had a higher level of emotional investment in it, because that's the one where he's actually out of the village. And he really he's believes He's actually it. in London, and he's actually in a plane looking for the village. He, You know, he is trying to take this place down. He finally escaped. But, of course they have eyes everywhere and they were there and you know they sent him right back in and it was just heartbreaking that he got sent right back in but to see his reaction to it he was just so resigned to mm. it like he wasn't surprised he he just kind of accepted it and it was like okay well you know I'll do another one tomorrow when when you were watching the start of the episode what did you think had happened when the village was empty did you think it was something external or did you think it was another plan no i thought it was a plan from the <laughs> beginning um, but I, I didn't know how it was going to play out. Mm. And and part of it was because I already didn't trust the, the men that he went to because of the, was it episode two where he escapes with Nadia? Mm. Yeah. And he thinks he's in London, but he's not. Which chimes a big bang. Um, You know, so he's already gone to people that he worked for and they've already shown that they're in on it too. And and so part of my frustration in, that, in Many Happy Returns um, was why are you trusting any of these people? Mm. Because you already know you can't trust anybody. Um, but the fact that he still felt like he could and that he's still very human. And it, that one for me, I think, was just the, the most emotional episode. Cool. I'm weird, I know. No, not at all. No, I <laughs> I think that's the nice thing about the show as well. It has that variety. So depending on what kind of episode you like, there'll be one for you, you know. Yeah. It almost it almost writes the list of episode types in a way. It it gives you the list of options from which everything that comes afterwards will choose throughout mm-hmm. the run of their series. Um so you know, where you do have these kind of standout types of episode, you know, you you already maybe have a framework whether it's from Buffy or Firefly or any other um kind of show that's come afterwards. You you have an understanding of what that episode might look like and whatever your understanding of what an episode of television might be, in some way the prisoner is likely going to subvert that. So there'll yeah. be a hook for everyone. Yeah, definitely. Do, Abby, do you have a favourite episode? I have. I do. <laughs> I really do. I have okay. I have uh, 
So I my my real favorite episode, my textbook favorite episode is Once Upon a Time, about which I'll talk in a second. Okay. But um my high M fifteen and um have you seen Alexis Canna? My favorite episode is A Living in Harmony. Um <laughs> because because it's something else. Because they took the whole show and they put it in a stable and they made it something else. And I um, grew up on my dad's VHS recordings of Clint Eastwood films and westerns and that sort of literature. I also have a wider theory of The Prisoner and and what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. And the way Living in Harmony fits into this particular theory, which I have discussed for for the podcast we're doing i've never actually said to anyone else so but my the way it fits into my particular theory really delights me and um and i am just so fond of that episode and how it translates what the prisoner is into something completely separate into really full-on americana something else a different structure of hierarchy patriarchy and um the idea of the sheriff as opposed to you know the number two the mm. the way that that episode fits together is so it's so odd it's so different it's so jarring i find it very exciting um the fact that alexis kind of comes back in the finale uh, which i should point out was my halloween costume 1998 um <laughs> i still have the shirt <laughs> tell me you have pictures i don't alas i oh. wish i did i wish i did yeah Pegs went as a vampire and I went as number 48. So, <laughs> <laughs> By the way, the prisoner, great Halloween costume. Just make a badge. It's fine. Pick a number. You're done. <laughs> it's, yeah. Take an umbrella. You're sorted. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, it's the easiest. I, I've been there a few times, but number 48 was my best. I had the hair at the time, so it's all fine. Um, yeah. Living in Harmony, I think, is is really special and unusual and exciting um but once upon a time is a two-hander i think it is a masterpiece i think patrick mcgowan was was a really acclaimed theater actor um when when i've been looking through sort of wikipedia and stuff apparently orson wells said that it you know it was a great loss to theater that he'd gone to television um i'd seen little bits of of his shakespeare and sort of theatrical performances and apparently he mm. was just remarkable incredible uh, on stage and when you watch once upon a time i think you can see that i think leo mckern is astonishing i think it is you know it's the whole pop goes the weasel it is sinister it is weird and it goes to every place where even in the show itself up until that point we've pulled back it takes you through all these things it takes you through the most bizarre role play and to see two actors of this caliber in this room, engaged in this kind of one-upmanship, in this verbal, peculiar tussle, it is it is wonderful. And every time I watch it, I'm surprised there'll be something I've forgotten because there's so much in that episode, there's so much that happens. Every single time I watch it and think, this was a clue that television was just as good as every other piece of media. This should have told you that you can do just as much as this as with any other format Mm -hmm. yeah so those are my two (laughs) what about you matthew uh i i think hammer into anvil like i say is is so good i i quite enjoyed early on 
And I mm. think it's because it's several episodes that work together. Um, although it starts off with them being like, right, we're going to try this scheme, we're going to try this scheme. The schemes quickly become actually making him buy into the reality of the village. Oh, interesting. Which which makes it more, in- yeah, much more interesting for me because it's not like he's fighting against it of always like, I'm not number six and this is crazy and <laughs> it can't work like this. Like The fact of... I think it might be where they make him, oh, they take a month and make him believe he's number 10 who's going to pretend to be number six. And then someone says to him about, oh, my name's Moira or something. He's like, no, you have to have a number. Like they are they are making him have to defend it in an unusual way, which makes him buy into the, the reality of the village. And it's actually like, okay, there, there is more of a long, a, a, a long play going on here than just one person trying to figure something out is like, okay let's do this in increments let's make him believe this let's make him believe this and then we'll have him because he'll be into it can we talk about how you how you both feel about the long play about the arc of the series and and what you think it is about well yeah i think that was almost where it goes to in some ways the ending destroys any thought of him being brought into it of like <laughs> oh no he knew it all oh okay okay cool but I, I I think the range, like we were saying earlier, the range of variety makes it much deeper that he doesn't quite know what's going on at any stage. He's just better than all of them and can defeat them. And you believe that of number six. I mean, do you believe that he can defeat them? Uh, because in the outline, yes. and I must say the part that gave me the most to discuss over breakfast this morning was the part where you referred to number six as a Mary Sue. And wow, did we get into that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, he's like, there's so much of this that he is basically Bond. But but you even think? more than that, like, even in the repartee, uh, Mandy, you made a thing about he doesn't talk in the opening of, of Many Happy Returns. Mm-hmm. And that's such a great character point. I think even more so than making an interesting watch. He doesn't say anything if if there's nothing to say. Yes, he's if the game is on and there's something going, he will say the thing that stops them interrogating more, that that shuts down their question or something. But if no one's around, he's not like Bruce Willis. God, if I'm not careful, I'll end up talking to myself. Ho ho ho! <laughs> it's, it's... But actually, that's a very very good point. He doesn't talk with nothing for the sake of it. Mm. And that, uh, the, the one time we see him fretting in the. Uh, on on the cameras, I think is more a production point because it was actually filmed so early. But it is clearly there is something. It tells you there's something going on there. Uh, but yeah, I I absolutely think he is. I think we're saying Mary Sue now because it's a, a term and a, an idea that we understand now. But the way he's written is just he's so smooth and he's so cool and no one can get past anything. Oh, and he gets into a fight with two guys, but he can take them down really easily. Oh, he's got to have a trampoline kung fu game tournament. Oh, he's got to play chess. Oh, of course he can play chess. Oh, he's got to go and be uh, pretend to be this guy playing cricket. And of course he can get to exactly the same score as that guy. <laughs> like well, anything that they ask him to do, he can do. So I find I find this really, really interesting because I think that the question here is, what is number six's goal? Because if his goal is to, as he says at one point, escape, come back and obliterate this, yeah. it never happens. And to all intents and purposes, 
in, sorry, intents and purposes. Sure, number six is incredibly competent. Sure, he can do everything that's thrown at him. But he's a British public schoolboy. He's been through the system. He's been trained to do everything, which mm. is, of course, something we, we certainly rely on with characters like Bond. But more than that, he's not successful. He doesn't win. I don't think ever. And I think that he is portrayed in a way that is unstable and not necessarily desirable. He is overly clever, clever sometimes. He is mm. not as funny as he thinks. He is shown up. He is embarrassed sometimes. And he can be unexpectedly violent. You know, look at look at the way he behaves with the radio early on. You know, um, he is obviously broken in some ways. Something has happened to him. He is, he has issues and he has some problems and I think they manifest in very demonstrative ways. But most of all, I think that a Mary Sue is a character that is open to you. A Mary Sue in fan fiction is often written as a you in second person. Number six is not available to you. Number six is a complete closed off character who behaves in his own way and has his context. And that context is known to Patrick McGuin. And that is that. And I think that that is a really interesting thing that you brought up for me this morning, which I think explains so much of what I love about this character, that he is done. He is not available for you to self-insert. He is not a space for the audience. He's not a what would you do if you woke up in the village. Obviously, that's a conversation you can have. But what number six will do is based on information you as the viewer do not have and will never get. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I think that if this show were made today, we would know from the beginning why he resigned. Like right? the audience would always have that answer and we would just be watching him and could you have a satisfactory answer? Is there any answer to that question that would make this show any better? I don't think there is. No, I don't think there is either. Matthew? I mean, I want to know, but that's just human nature. I think the very fact that he maintains that secret is what is so vital. I think, I think it's what makes it interesting. And I think the fact that he never has an explicit, this is what it's all about. I think that's why we're still talking about it because I think that any answer further than what we get would have placed the show in a time and space that would mean that we couldn't engage with it. But because it remains so closed, it it is what it is and it's still available to us. So I have a question for both of you. Go forth. Do, do you think, I mean, Abby, you've said that he doesn't win which is obvious because he doesn't actually do what he intended to do. But the show ends with him driving off in his car. He still has access to his house. He's back in London. Do you think he is free? No, absolutely not. And I, as I say, I, I have a main idea about what the show is and kind of a secondary idea about what I would want for him were that not the case. Um, in every regard, I don't think it's a happy ending. I I don't think it's indicative of freedom of any kind. Um, I do quite like seeing them going down the open road. That is fun, but no. Is it a better ending than him just staying on the, in the village? 
I th- I just if if it wasn't for the door, I think it'd be a terrible ending. But mm-hmm. because of the door, it's perfect, and I'm <laughs> absolutely delighted by it. And I, I early on when uh, when they're talking, one of the number twos says that their aim is for the world to be more like the village. And I feel mm-hmm. like by the time you get to the finale, you see that that is at least extended to London or in that consciousness through which we're seeing the show it has at least extended to london and i think that's yeah that's that's perfect i th- i think the ending of the prisoner is perfect i am so delighted by it all the time and i think the only thing that has come close to it um and let's skip spoilers but i, I noticed it uh, it wasn't mentioned when we were talking about things that had influenced it but the penultimate episode of the leftovers is the most directly prisoner-based thing i've ever seen and i was so excited by it and entertained by that episode and i felt like it really nailed what an ending is and i think that that episode was so deeply influenced on a on a really pleasurable level by the prisoner um it really got what was great about the end of the show for me Can you tell me what it means? And and this is obviously you probably don't actually know, but but your your thoughts on what it means that the butler changed his allegiance to number six at the end. Mine. Yes. Well, either <laughs> number six is number one. Uh, number one consolidates his understanding of the uh, ultimate authority to be himself. Number six's journey is is an anarchic route to individual superiority um Mm -hmm. patrick mcgurn is very big on kind of that aspect of individual freedom um and uh not being controlled by the state and i think that we really see that come to fruition Mm -hmm. Uh, it's you know the the old uh fan favorite is that of course in that opening monologue it says who is number one and it says you are number six you know you change the inflection, you see the end of the story. Um, mm-hmm. The butler has always been allegiant to number six, but number six has been going through a process. M- Mandy, what do you think on that question? What, what were your thoughts at the end on, on what he's been through? I, okay, I, well, I've only seen it the one time and mm-hmm. there's so much information that it's impossible to really have a, a single coherent thought about what's happening but it's all people had in 1968 you're nine, absolutely you know? right it's I mean, valid it, that wasn't it it, yeah that wasn't an era where you could like rewatch things yeah or binge them um i i understood that the end goal was in this moment number six is number one but i i can't quite wrap my head around the idea that number six was always number one if that was what was intended to be um, and, and I think that's just a bit of that the sci-fi aspect of of the show itself too. What did you um, feel was intended? I I don't know. I mean, because honestly, I got to the point. If you were reading my notes, I was like, "Oh my god, is number one an alien?" <laughs> like, I love your notes so here? much. I love them. They're so good. <laughs> I mean, I was trying so hard to figure out what was actually happening, and um, in those moments, I was looking for what was on the surface and this this show very clearly does not live on the surface 
there there is just a tiny tiny tip of what Patrick McGowan was trying to say on the surface that nails it for me so underneath absolutely um and and I think honestly I need to rewatch this like 50 more times (laughs) really (laughs) we'll do another one in 20 years (laughs) okay (laughs) um so so I mean I I got like it felt very deep to me, like I, I understood the sense that that something big was being said here, and, and I understood the idea of individual individualism versus state being like the main point that he was trying to say. But being able to connect the dots between the specific things I was watching on the screen and the message that I was feeling was where I got stuck. I find it really interesting that you did have the feeling that it was very deep because I think we've all, uh, with one show or another, been through the experience of either we watch something or the internet watches something and feels that it is trite or, you know, there'll be a big reveal and everyone will just be like, that is not a big reveal. That is stupid. <laughs> so this, or, or we had it in season one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Or, or it's not a thing. But this, to you... Can you elaborate on the extent to which it felt like a thing? Because I, I think we lack it sometimes now. I don't know. Well, I think part of it is because we have, as a society, we have come to this idea of pure instant gratification when it comes to the media that we consume. We yes. want to know the answers and we want to know the answers now. And that is not a thing that existed in 1967. And this is a show that was completely new for its time. You know, mixing, I think, the the sci-fi with the thriller spy stuff with the technology and actually trying to have a deep philosophical meaning all at the same time is something that hadn't been done before and, quite frankly, I don't think has been done since. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, And so... What we would get today is, like like I said, if we got this show today, we would know why he resigned up front. That would be part of that two-minute monologue at the beginning, or not monologue, but opening sequence. You know, we would – the surprises of the the special secret number twos, the hints that would have been dropped so heavy-handed on those would be so that when you get the twist, you're like, oh, that's not a twist. That's a point. You'd get the guest star drip-fed into it, wouldn't you? Because a lot of right. these people, and again, right. I, this is one of the things that's come up when we've been doing our research, a lot of these people would have been household names, would have been big surprises mm-hmm. or big stars in, in a mm-hmm. certain sense. Right, and they they went so far as to, they recorded, um, most of the number twos got to dub their line yes. on the new number two. But there was one who did just like the generic one that anytime that you didn't weren't supposed to know who number two was, yeah. they did that one, you know, and like they worked really, really hard to make it so that you didn't actually know what was going on. They wanted you to be surprised and they wanted you to experience the journey yes. to learn the message that he was trying. There's to, an awareness to say, of that rather than viewer experience, which sorry, I. Realized yes. you talked over the end of your sentence. <laughs> but you know when you're listening fine. to a podcast and you think, oh my God, they totally talked over the end of the sentence. I'd like to point out my awareness there. <laughs> I was just excited by um, by the fact that, that um, there's an awareness of the, the audience experience of The Prisoner. 
And I think that, again, I think that very much comes from Patrick McGowan as somebody with a disturbingly forthright idea of of the minutiae of the show. You know, how it should appear, what the mm-hmm. watching of it should be like, that I don't know if you necessarily get with other things. Um, I, I have a, another show that I would like to name drop at some point, like an If You Liked, Then You Should Watch. I don't know where I should mention that. Um, so I only found it very recently, but um, on iPlayer in the UK, if you have iPlayer, you can watch uh, Quatermass in the Pit. Matthew, I don't know if you... Mm. Mm. So that's from December 1958. And it's such early science fiction. And it is a real mystery box. Um, I think it's... Is it eight episodes? Six or eight episodes? Um, yeah, not and many. And it's... Oh, it's really spooky. It's It's such an interesting show. And I think just when we... It really helped me think about The Prisoner and the context of The Prisoner, because this was, you know, 10 years later. But Quatermass, it has a strong female scientist, you know, it has um, that mystery box thing where you don't know what's going on, you don't know what's in the pit for, like, six episodes. Um, And I I just, I think it's really interesting because we, we talk about sort of originality and so on, but I think it's also easy to forget that a lot of the culture from that period was taped over or lost in various ways. You know, early Mm -hmm. television in the UK, tape was expensive. Uh, Tape was often reused, which is why every so often you get like someone in Holland who's got like five extra episodes of Dad's Army or something and everyone is so happy and it's really nice and it gets reinstalled and put on DVD and we're all so pleased. Um, (laughs) But sometimes I think we we forget, you know, you think of something like uh, like Journey in Space, which is just this seminal radio series, uh, which I have been a huge fan of for years and years, um, where, you know, there'll be, you, you've got a spaceship and, and voices in space, and it will be a whole series before you find out what it is. And I think we were pretty good at uh, drawn out mystery back in in that period of time i think visiting the media of the 50s and 60s um and particularly when you're heading around the golden age of sci-fi i think that sometimes the prisoner is not as revolutionary as it feels but the fact that it survives so intact and so uh, representative of one person's vision you know when we talk about patrick mcgurn as a really early example of the showrunner somebody who is driving through his idea of his story I think that's that's one of the things that kind of separates it out. But if you put it in a wider cultural context, you know, we're not far from 2001 Space Odyssey, uh, but we're also not far from Bond. So when you start to mix all of those things together, The Prisoner can look a little bit like a greatest hits of 1967. I think that's interesting to think about too. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's it's some of some of the the actual data the episode to episode stories are like oh yeah they did that on that Star Trek episode they did that on that mm. you know it's using the sixties idea of hey what does hypnosis do what do computers do let's see what we can push it in sci fi but I think even more so than the the mystery um that that long term mystery being told in an interesting way in lots of series the thing that I think sets the prisoner apart is that it doesn't tell you there's a mystery or the show is not related to its own mystery the question is why did you resign and that's from (laughs) minute one 
Oh, ab- absolutely. But it's not talking about what is the organisation that's against him and how are they set up and the background of it. A- another show might do lots of investigation and piece by piece uncovering it and so on. The that's village and the organisation just exist and just do stuff. And you are not told or given anything about why there's different number twos, what's happening there. Uh, so tell us more, Matthew, because I... I... <laughs> I'm really interested in in your perspective on on some of this. How you feel about that that context? Do you feel that, that works sort of politically, um, establishment wise? You know, as as a fellow Brit with the, that kind of experience of our the way that our government and hierarchy and the sides are usually portrayed. How do you find that comes through? I I think it works incredibly well. It works better than something like a 1984. In, okay. in terms of the the paranoia about no no paranoia is not the right word the acceptance of things are done differently at this high level the fact that government and civil servants work in a different way than most companies and most people and organizations and you kind of don't necessarily get to see some of the inside stuff about it but, because you're the viewer yeah but yet it has this far-reaching, it impacts so much in the decisions people are making and what they're doing, and everyone is going along with it. The whole village is there to do whatever number two is deciding to do that week. And, and some episodes we see that more, to a greater or lesser extent, but, you know, sometimes the village just disappears. Sometimes the village starts accusing him of being terrible and unmutual. Um, and then other times there's people in the village who are like, oh, of course I'll help you escape. Yes, that would be a great luck. Uh, but I'd like to ask both of you in that case, um, do you think that the village exists outside number six? You mean as far as, uh, do you mean physically or do you mean as far as are there other prisoners there? Either way. I do believe it actually exists, but I spent many, many episodes trying to determine is this entire village constructed just to break this one man? Hmm. Or are there actually other prisoners here? And I still don't actually know the answer to that question. Neither do because I. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it feels like he's the only prisoner there and every other person that he interacts with is a plant. And sometimes it feels like there are actually other prisoners there. Especially when you get an episode where he's reading a bedtime story to children who live in the village. Mm. Which is, I'm sure that's the only time you see children. Mm. I could be wrong, but I'm fairly certain it's the only time. <laughs> You know, and then and then you get the reveal in the final episode that um, that number two was the same. He said he had been kidnapped mm. and they broke him. And that's how he became like he became a, a man of the establishment. And, you know, he and number 48, you know, number six helps them break out because he sees a kinship with those two because those two are being presented to him at that point as people who have revolted against number one. But we can't trust anything that we've ever seen from anybody Mm. in a position of authority in the village. And so I still don't know what is actually happening (laughs) ever. But how exciting to have watched the whole series and still not be sure what you've seen. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm delighted by it. (laughs) I think it's fantastic storytelling, honestly. So, okay. I'm going to return us a bit to the conversation about what we think it is. And, and this mm-hmm. obviously ties into the ending. I am a firm believer in the, the cycle of it. That he 
either was number one or was a significant member of the organization. And in the intro, he resigns from the organization that used the village as a kind of, to use a modern analogy, Dharma initiative, to do, run experiments and do interesting things, possibly to people, possibly just using computers and hypnosis, at, at will, without mm. government oversight and a kind of Randian you know, idea of everyone just gets to do whatever they want with no uh, real oversight. He resigns from the organization and the organization puts him in the place they put people to find out why they resigned. Mm. So from the beginning, he understands why he's there. I don't know whether he's number one at that point, but I do think at the end he is going off to resign, having become number one and possibly might go through the same thing. But this is just one chapter of his story within the organization. It's not like he was yeah, MI5. Unless it is MI5. Ooh. Are <laughs> oh. these the conservatives? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I think I read a fan theory. I mean, I did read this. I, I don't mm. think I read it. I did read a fan theory that I think was essentially that this was an extension of Danger Man. So as a secret agent, I think his character name was John Drake. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, he had envisioned a nice retirement place for secret agents where they could just go after they were done with their work and just be in a place that was safe. And he, he finds out after he, um, that, I don't know, I guess after he resigns, he gets sent to this place and that's when he finds out that, that they had like con- corrupted it into this thing to extract information. And that's what we're seeing, which I think is also a fascinating perspective especially if you do believe that number six is john drake interesting there's lots of stuff mm. out there what's your overarching thought matthew i i don't think he is john drake um like i say I, th- I think it particularly is that he either was number one or was a previous number two or something involved in this place and they have then turned him into a subject of it having over having run it Something on those lines. But but I, I think I wanted to ask a, an extension of what Mandy's asking. Do you two think that's where we come in or that he has an awareness of this? Was he number one? Having only watched it once mm-hmm. um, and, and looking primarily at the surface, because that's my main experience of it at this point, I don't think that's true. I think he was, while he may not have been John Drake, he may have been like John Drake and he was essentially a James Bond. He was a spy. Okay. He was, you know, out doing all of this work. He's James Bond or Ethan Hunt, you know, and he's got all of these state secrets and they need to figure out why he decided he was leaving. Um so I I really do believe that he was important enough that they need to get this information from him, but I don't think it's too Twilight Zone-esque to believe that he was actually number one from the beginning. Because then you have to think about, well, did they wipe his memory of that stuff, but not everything else? And then if they did, how could they wipe the memory of him being number one, but keep in the information they're trying to get? And then it just makes my brain hurt. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Abby, I, I assume over the years you have thought about this from every angle and everything. <laughs> yes. Do you have the single unified prisoner theory? Yes. Would you okay. like it? Yes. I will do my uh, best. Are we about to spoil your own podcast? Are we? Should uh, we tell people no, just to I'm tune really in? To... 
we're we're doing this well ahead of time, right? I'm hoping we will be complete and organized. And also, you know what? If you want to hear me talk a lot more about this, that's over there. If this was enough, that's fine too. <laughs> and, and yes, yes, I do. Frankly. Um, oh, absolutely, yes. So, Mandy, I think you already hit it in your notes, um, which made me really happy. Really, really happy. You know when you said this is just like normal again in Buffy? Yes. Uh, Matthew, you're familiar with Buffy and the episode normal again? Yeah, a little bit. Cool. (laughs) Let's just say you are, and let's not massively spoil Buffy, but let's just say it works. Oh, yeah, no, no, I am intimately familiar with Buffy. Sorry. Okay, good. The episode normal again, specifically, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, which I I think works. If you want to go there, it works. And I've always enjoyed that and really respected that about the episode. And I think that that is where I go with the prisoner. For me, number six is a man who has been drugged and kidnapped. Is he in a beautiful Italian village? No. He's in a nasty little cell somewhere. Somewhere. Someone wants to know why he resigned. Does it matter? Who? No. Someone wants information that he cannot give. For whatever reason, he is not prepared to give that information. The entire series is number six, wherever he is, reformatting the torture that he goes through into a series of games into a process into things that are familiar to him into circumstances in which he can play and delight and have fun because the relentless questioning that comes through the relentless why did you resign that uh constant kind of reframing reformatting the physical and mental torture that he goes through I think that each time you can strip it down to something very basic that happens to him in a cell, in nowhere, in nothing. Here's someone you know. Well, you're not in an Italian village, but you are in somewhere else, in somewhere nondescript, in nothingness. And this is when I mentioned earlier about how I really enjoy living in harmony. I think if you think about the idea of... Um, it's it's unpleasant but if you think about the idea of torture over time I think the number six begins to degrade begins to break uh, begins to run out of ways to reframe things so he starts to reframe his ways of dealing with authority as a western you know his childhood interests or a fairground something so separate so relaxing so different um, he's he's he is giving the context. The torture is real, the questioning is real, the framing, the complexity of it is real, but the circumstance we never see. We're never engaged with in in various ways. And And I like to think about it in that kind of meta way. And I think that as you gradually get towards the end, you experience a drastic mental degradation of somebody who has been under duress for an excessive period of time and somebody who at the end says the highest authority is me and I am number one and that gives me the authority, the clarity to respond in any which way I choose to anything that I am asked. I can relax into this, I am in the system, I am in the village and that is where I reside because what is me, what is mine, is this secret that I will not give up, is this constant um, intensity of, of confidence in himself and understanding of who he is in that space. I will not give this knowledge up. 
but that makes me in charge because I know that now and I know who I am and I know that there is, we've been through all the scenarios. I've survived them. Here we are. That is my unifying theory of prisoner. <laughs> nice. Okay. Dude, that's <laughs> I feel that was a bit of a monologue. No, yeah. but I, I can appreciate as someone who knows every uh, most bits of minutiae and detail. It's 20 years of checking if that still works. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think it still works. But okay. you know, the nice thing that I think about the prisoner as well is you don't need to like that or, or think about it. Um, and it's fun to discuss. What what I love about The Prisoner as a fandom, especially where it resides on the internet, and then The Prisoner Fan Club, shout out to The Prisoner Fan Club, of which I have been an on and off mm-hmm. member when I can afford it for years. The conversation is delightful. The fact that it exists is enough. You know, the enjoyment that thousands of people have had of this show for years is something that we don't see very often. It it makes me very happy. So we don't all need to agree, but I think we all have thoughts. And and stepping back from the in-universe stuff, do you think a lot of that comes from the fact there are no answers, that it is a joy to discuss? Yes, because, again, I think there's there's a lovely... Um, so there's two things. There's on You know how I talked about the 24-hour prisoner channel at Port mm. Merriam? There used to be, as part of that, um, a, an interview with Patrick McGowan in which he discussed the prisoner and, and what it meant to him and how he felt about it. And at some point, somebody at Port Marion taped over this interview and they went, oh, we didn't have a backup. Good job, guys. <laughs> which is the most British holiday resort story, I think, we can all have. Someone pressed record instead of play one night and the VHS just... Yeah, a whole time. And they got the midnight hour. <laughs> Basically, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was a whole thing. Um, but so, I, but I remember this. This was, you know, back at... Um, my wife and I used to go to Port Marion on holiday. Um, when when we were quite young to kind of go on holiday and you can rent these properties. The houses in the show, you can stay in them. Not number sixes, because that's the gift shop. That's the prisoner gift shop. Number six is flat, by the way. Smart, yeah. Um, <laughs> But you can you can rent these properties inside the village and, and live in them for as long as you want. And we would go and stay there for a couple of weeks at the time um, because I I was living in Wales at the time. It was not that far and it was not very expensive, especially in dead of winter when no one was there. Mm. So you can go and be in this space and kind of have those experiences. So you used to get this interview where he was very clear that the prisoner was whatever it needed to be. It was about anarchy and politics and hierarchy and the relationship between the individual and the state and that was something that I was not particularly engaged in when I was younger I didn't really you know I was a teenager in the late 90s in Britain I wasn't that politically engaged in that way it didn't really mean very much to me but I think when I look at it now that volatility and number six is volatility I find a really interesting concept the idea that he is so against that kind of uh, state manipulation, the whose side are you on? The idea that one might not know. The idea that he, I think in the the notes, uh, at one point, uh, one of you asked whether or not we were supposed to be sympathetic Mm. to number six. And I think what's particularly interesting for the 60s is that we don't know whose side he's on. Is he rebelling against the British government? Because that could be very appealing 
or very repelling, depending on what side you're on. We don't know. The His kind of anarchic streak, his smash the system generally um, suggestions, I think if you take it as the village exists and he's existing within state and not state, I think that it can be quite a peculiar experience. So there's an extra on these new DVDs, which I think relates to that particular interview that I have seen in the past, Mm. which is an overwritten version. (laughs) It's a long story of people trying to capture Patrick McGowan and talk to him and and say, what is the prisoner? And I just, I highly recommend if you can find this extra that you do. So a guy tries to get a meeting with Patrick McGowan in California, where he lived out the end of his life. Um, And he does. And they record an interview. But the next day, Patrick McGowan says, no, I didn't. Not that. I didn't mean that. Delete, delete, delete. We'll do it again. Invites him back. Okay. And wants to re-script it and reshoot it. And and this is just an interview about the prisoner, but he's, you're going to sit over there and the light will be like this and we'll do it like this and, and take and retake and when I don't say it as I mean. And even then, he is still directing the experience of the conversation about the prisoner. And I just... This is one of the reasons that I don't think you can remake it because I think it is one person's very succinct experience of a story. And I think to go outside, that doesn't necessarily work. But I think to look at a conflict between individual and state, I think is so relevant now in a way that it maybe wasn't in the 90s, but maybe was in the 60s. I think we'll be able to keep telling this story. And I I don't think we need to necessarily do it again. But I think it's... Just particularly interesting that McGowan himself did not want to give us much more than we ever got in the show because he felt he'd already laid it out. The work was done. Mm. Yeah, and, and and I think the success of it and, and the fact it still remains so popular and, and something people want to talk about is because you can dig into it and you can take something from it that's com- based on your own background and ideas. I mean, I don't know of another show that has this open-endedness that is so content to sit inside itself. It never goes... Well, I suppose maybe it does, you know, when you're talking about things like Many Happy Returns or something, but it always brings it back inside the instance of the show mm. that you see, even with the ending, you know. It's very hard to find an end, and I don't think we'd let a modern show get away with that. I don't think we'd let it finish like that now. Lost was pretty open-ended, too. Oh. But it also generated a huge outrage. Although, <laughs> my understanding is that the prisoner did as well, enough that he had to go into hiding for a few yeah. weeks to get away from fans and costing him about it. It is interesting, talking to my dad and my father-in-law about it, my dad loved the end of it. He thought it was hilarious. He was so proud of the show live for going down that route and saying... It's cool. I've got this. I know my show. I know what the end is. Do you need to know? No. My father-in-law was cross. Well, you didn't give me an answer. You didn't tell me. You didn't tell me who it is. Who is number one? That doesn't make sense. I wanted an answer. My dad was so delighted that it ended on its own terms. Hmm. And I think now we'd accept it more, but, but certainly at that time, like, no, you, you explain to your audience, you do not let them think. Um, I I reached out to my dad. I wanted to catch up with him, having watched it this time, to have a proper conversation. We've not been able to line up. 
Alas. But I have had a couple of texts from him while we've been recording. I've not looked at my phone, honestly. Um, but apparently I've been to Port Marion. You have? Apparently, oh, wow. So, apparently when I was six or seven, we stayed in a freezing house in Carnarvon. And then went oh. up to... My, my parents met at Bangor. So... Ah. Uh. Like, so did my grandparents. Ah, bless. Um, <laughs> and my dad said he's also parked in the car park by Parliament where he parks his catering during the credits. Um, nice. I, I will have to have a proper conversation with my dad and maybe come and record with you, Abby, later another time. Do. I'm find out what fascinated he and delighted. Um, your whole thing about him being in some institution and, and we're seeing his Something. unreliable narration of what's going on, effectively. Mm. Um, or what's going on in his head. I know we've mentioned lots of shows that there is one more that it just brought to mind. And it's the one that I think could also do this sort of open-ended ending that you can lay your own thoughts onto is Legion. I have not seen that. Okay. And I've not watched the second season of that. So I don't know if it starts giving us more answers, (laughs) but certainly the first season finishes and it's like, I'm not sure I got a story in that. I just got lots of cool things going on. (laughs) So, so I think, now putting this layer on, on it of, of another way of thinking and perhaps another basis that that took some of its ideas from, I might return to that as well. Mandy, did you watch Legion? I have not watched it yet. Okay, okay. I would quite like to watch it, I think. Mm. It's been on my radar for a bit, but not got there. I, I struggled until it got really good at one point, but not good enough to make me go, oh, I must watch season two when it comes out. So it's been on the dvr for a long time um, i think that's one of the things with with um television so we started watching a couple of shows the other day haunting mm-hmm. of hell house and sabrina and talking about early episodes and that's one of the things that's so great about the prisoner is it hits the ground running it's mm. here is your show welcome this is what we're doing <laughs> this and so much more you know it's very separate and very enclosed and, and very different. It's not introducing you to a strange group of characters to who something might happen. It's a, here's a story. Yeah. <laughs> this is what we're doing now. Um, and your choice is, is to go with it or not watch. And clearly it's it's engaged people over the years and it continues to have that engagement, which makes me just delighted. Hmm. Okay. I think we've touched on a lot of points, but, but Mandy, do you have favourite things other than specific episodes were there moments out, out of this that jumped out of you it's like okay that's cool that's awesome kosho <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't help you it i think play. it's the most amazing thing ever and i really okay, wish can you other describe people... <laughs> it yeah <laughs> so kosho is this martial arts-esque sport that patrick McEwen made up for the show and it involves two very large trampolines set um side by side um well, long ways with a like water trowel between them. And the point is that you jump on these trampolines and beat each other up until you knock one of one of you gets knocked into the water, essentially. And it's fantastic. I called it trampoline wrestling until I knew what it was actually called. And I think it appeared in only two episodes, hmm. but it looked like so much fun. And I want to do that. <laughs> Yeah, I would like to do. I it does happen every so often. I think uh, uh, prisoner cons, various <laughs> cons. I'm pretty sure I've seen in the prisoner fan club like accounts of people playing it. I, it 
I love that it has rules and a plan. Like there's a way. It's all good. <laughs> yeah, I I think it's amazing, and I I got so excited about it that I had to. Um, while I was watching it, I stopped and tweeted at you, Abby, that that was my favorite thing of the show so far. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and that's when I found out what it was because I didn't know what it was, and I wanted to find the GIF. And if you if you search like the Twitter GIF bar for the prisoner trampoline, you just get random people on trampolines. That's it. And so I was like, okay, yeah. how can I narrow this down? And so then I just did a Google search, and that's when I found out what it was called because there was a recent IO9 article about it, and it was just fantastic. And so, so then cool. I looked, searched for Kosho in the gift bar, and it immediately popped up. So much more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, that- I had that with any Googling of The Prisoner. You search, like, The Prisoner, impact on TV, and it's like – how do prisoners get to watch TV? <laughs> like life inside a prison. Prison as portrayed for minorities on TV. Like, yeah. yeah. N- not what I meant. <laughs> not that thing. Yeah, I but, ended up I mean, going down a Wikipedia rabbit hole because they're, I mean, like the village has its own Wikipedia ar- Wikipedia article. I mean, uh, yeah. The absolutely. rover does, like number two does. And you don't usually get that level of detail. This is what I'm saying about the fandom being formed. You know, the internet was built on these people. This mm-hmm. was the show. Right. This was where we were in 1995-6 when the internet was taking space. It was one of the few things that you could really research was the prisoner. It was, you know, there was that discussion. There was that kind of frame-by-frame contemplation. This is where the fandom was. This was an early internet fandom. Mm-hmm. And it was one of my ways into the internet as a girl who was really connected to technology and those things um it gave me that space to learn about how to f- how to find people how to make friends how to engage with your culture on the internet and this is something i'm perpetually grateful for um you know the internet was an early fandom in the same way that star trek was and in, in that kind mm. of thing it was what the internet was literally built for how can we make these spaces to share the discussion about something we love and I love that we're still doing it. That's one of the reasons I'm so thrilled to be doing this, because this is how I started. It's always really exciting when we have somebody on the show who just loves the source material <laughs> so, so much. <laughs> it's wonderful. I mean, this is this is just... I my my relationship my life my holidays my writing you know i used to go on writing holidays to port marion because you can lock yourself in an attic and look at the sea (laughs) i i wrote novels looking at the sea in port marion you know i've watched the prisoner for 24 hours straight and taken advantage of you know pegs was talking about the time where we used to like we would get somewhere in the village and then we would get all the different points in different episodes where you could look out of the window and see the same view and just serious hard nerding through <laughs> I love it through this series yeah, yeah it's but it lets you it gives mm. you that space to engage on that level and that's a wonderful thing it's it's a generous show in that way it doesn't mock you there's never any point where it makes fun of you for anything that you've thought to date I think uh, after many happy returns I wanted to find one of the locations he went to the interesting square with the stag statue on it uh-huh. Um, and I found I have literally just, like, by a week or two, missed this year's uh, Prisoner London Locations Tour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's so many of these things, you know. Now there's, you know, like the, there's conventions around this. Mm. And that, it's it's a thing now. <laughs> I, I think had it been, like, oh, it's next weekend, I probably would have done it. 
<laughs> Even I probably would have done it, to be honest. <laughs> well, okay, we'll put a date in for October 2019, because it does look like, I think, maybe every April and October or something. I believe so. Yeah. I believe it is a regular thing. But it does look like there's a different thing there for that square, because the square just looked really nice. I was like, I want to go and yeah. visit that square. Yep. Apparently it's got an office on it now. <laughs> Mandy, anything else that stood out to you? Anything that grabbed you particularly? I think we've covered most of it, honestly. Um, I, I wanted to ask you what your favorites were besides the, the few things that you've you've gotten to, to mention. I feel like Abby and I have really dominated this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I, I There is a lot about this that I love. But from a production perspective, um, it, you can see just how high the production values are. Like this was clearly a marquee show that the uh, ITV were putting together. And that one of the things that stands out for me, in fact, there are two things that stand out. One is the credits, the way they change the credits every episode. Like shows now don't even do that when they say they want to because it's too expensive. Mm-hmm. And this was recording at least new lines, if not doing a couple of different things with the credits, cutting it, moving it around. I, I was floored each time watching it going, oh, that's a different person recording or that's that's something that's changed about it. But even more so than that, the the music, and I, I don't often talk about music because it's not something that I, I notice too much in, in mm. the shows or movies that we watch. It's just, for whatever reason, it's not something I pick up on. But the range of music in this, that almost every episode there seemed to be some sort of different score, different backing, some sort of variation on something like Pop Goes the Weasel or some sort of classic <laughs> tune. Every so often there was a stinger, particularly going in and out of adverts, a, a bit of music that you recognise from previously. But so often there was something else being done. And they use it in really clever ways. Sometimes it's completely, it's almost antagonistic to what's going on on screen. There's a couple of times we have fights set to really peaceful music that just <laughs> throw me out of the moment so hard, but make it more interesting. But more often than not, they're using something like uh, an oboe track to show that when he's uh, doing something clever, beating someone or something, just to keep it on the edge of it's a fun show that everyone can watch. I think you could so easily redo some of the backing music to make it a bit more sinister or a bit harder. And it suddenly feels like something a lot more mature that you'd have to put on after nine or something. And I think just just having that impact through the music, it shows the Again, the the high quality of every bit of the show, everything they're thinking about doing. Like, what can we do to make this even more interesting? I think I do think the sound is phenomenal. And one of the things that's easy to overlook in this day and age where we're used to kind of soundtracked things and, um, you know, that, that mm. level of contemplation. But um, one of the episodes I was watching earlier, A, B and C, and you look at the different music choices throughout the episode and you think that's... You're doing so much work here. You're, yeah. you're putting so much in. Um, or even with many happy returns, look at the the landscaping soundtrack where you don't have dialogue, but you do have the landscape. You do have the sea, you have mm. the land, you have the wind, you have those sounds. There's a lot of care put into sound and the prisoner in all different ways. Um, I mean, just just as in every aspect of it, you know, from set decor to sound is it's thorough it's made with precision i think which we won't necessarily get from a lot of television for a long time no and 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 even now i i feel like most shows get a soundtrack 
some sort of score, some sort of, you know, range of music is put together and then they just have to use it over and over again. So the longer the show runs, the more familiar you become with it. This felt like we didn't get the chance to get familiar with everything. So everything felt new and original each time it was brought mm. in. Yeah. Terrific. Um, and I think the other thing I want to touch on is the wonderful Britishness of it all. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, uh, and I th- I think without the kind of the class system, the concept of of the hierarchy, mm. that's I mean you know who is number one? That whole thread of hierarchy that is what the British understanding of these things is in many ways. Um, touch more on that, please. <laughs> well, I I think I love it from a, a sort of. The, the stiff upper lip thing the, the fact that he's he goes to number one no not number one he goes to number two almost every week and has this bit of back and forth and things and you know oh we're making chocolate things against against each other <laughs> even though we're enemies and you're doing some seriously shady stuff to me but i can beat you so i will make jokes at you ha 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 and and the one the moment that stood well no the the moment that stood out particularly was I think it's Dance of Death at the court scene and the lady is talking about he, he's got a radio of his own. He's talking to people in the radio. He's getting messages on the radio and, you know, I've seen him doing this. And that's clearly he's working against the village. Well, what was the radio saying? Oh, I didn't, yeah. I didn't listen. It's improper to listen. Like, okay, <laughs> but you're fully spying on him. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but uh, yeah. oh, one shouldn't listen in though. Oh. How did that work for you, Mandy, the sense of it being a piece of British television? I mean, you mm. mentioned at the beginning that it hadn't been something you'd seen a whole lot of. I, I don't think I'm familiar enough with like British tropes and British stereotypes to really be able to look at it and say, oh, it just felt really British to me. Partly, I think that's really interesting. Well, partly also though because it was a different time. It was you know so there was just so much unknown for me. It was it was 1967. Mm. It was you know the past trying to also be very futuristic, and it was British. And so when you just combine all of it, it was just this giant unknown to me. And, and so mm. I didn't, I couldn't watch it like you guys can and say, oh wow, this was really super British because it was just all new. But then when we talk about the influences and the things that have kind of capitalized on things done by the prisoner, we're almost always talking about American television and, and directors. Mm-hmm. So whilst it, it is, for me, it, it really is a very British piece of television, I wonder how much more there is to get. I mean, I, I suppose there are certain reflections of the class system and there are points in the plot that, that really draw on that. But I don't know. I don't, I, yeah, I, I, I suppose ne- neither of us can see what we can't see, right. as it were, hmm. does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. We can't see outside our own perspective. Um, I think it's very interesting that there are points where it's suggested that number six has the job that he has because of his fiance's father. For me, that's like a significant kind of suggestion about hierarchy and and where he sits in British society. Um, but even if you even if you don't have that, I I don't know. I it operates so much in the kind of upper strata of British society that I think you can watch it without that concept. And you know, even if you only have Bond as a reference, I would guess that it would work. 
I don't know. What do you think, Matthew? I'm reminding myself that we're talking to someone who is pop culture deprived. <laughs> and, and I'm not sure Mandy's watched any Bond. Oh, really? I watched oh, I've missed the that. very first Daniel Craig movie. That's okay. it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I know. I, I get that a lot. <laughs> no, but I, th- I think that's... So I haven't seen a whole lot of Bond films, but I am very aware of Bond as a character. I've read a lot of the books. Mm. Um, and I think that... So Patrick McGowan was offered the Bond character um, in the films, but oh. because of his uh, strong kind of Catholic background right. and deep disinterest in that particular character, he didn't go down that road. So in a sense, this is a response to Bond. Mm-hmm. as a character so yeah i mean bond is iconic enough that i'm definitely very familiar with the character and the the tropes surrounding bond like i know what a bond girl is you know i'm i'm super aware of the austin powers parody of bond i just don't <laughs> know the specific stories that were told and and the villains and, and that sort of thing interesting I also liked in this, just just the final thing on the Britishness, that there is a, a long-running thing about how he takes his tea. But I love that you picked up on that, because I wasn't sure whether that was something that you would necessarily notice. Well, particularly the, does he take sugar or not? And and they use that as, um, I, I would imagine in the writing, just as a throwaway thing about how much they know about him or not. But it does feel like they actually pick up on that and make it a thing, which again is particularly at this time of very British, middle class at least, behaviour. You know, you have afternoon tea, you have it in this way. And when we see many happy returns and we see the three-level fruitcake tea tray and so on. Um, yeah. But even when we get through to, I cannot remember, but the one where the lady was drugging him, he mm-hmm. then remakes the tea. And I feel like when he remakes the tea and he puts in all the sugar, there is a cut to number two and it's like, Wait, no, what? Sugar? Where's the lemon gone? They, they are trying to make it accessible in a funny way to people who are just watching that and in a deeper way to people who are paying attention or, or who've seen all the other episodes and going, oh, it's the tea thing again. Yeah. <laughs> but it's so naturalistic to British life. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a conversation that is so kind of prevalent. It's such a part of... I know any kind of socialising or sort of work-based mm. activity, you will have that conversation about tea at some point. So it's great. As a final thing on Britishness, I, I enjoy that that is a recurring thing. And I'm not sure you could do it without it being winky nod to the audience anymore. No, I I think that's true. I think it really is incorporated very nicely in there because it's... Because of the period as well, I think we sort of expect them to be asking the tea-based question. <laughs> yes. If you saw, I mean, whereas yeah. now I think it would stand out a bit more. Okay, Abby, do you have favourite things about this anymore? Do you know it so yes. intensely that it's all just in one? <laughs> My single favourite thing is is Patrick McGurn, is his performance and his singularity, his... Um, drive mm. I always enjoy you know it's it's a thread that runs through things that I love they tend to be a vision they tend to be somebody's crowning masterwork that you know they they tend to be something that that is somebody's great message and I really look at the prisoner as Patrick McGowan's message his 
best achievement, his best piece of work, and the opportunity to make something entirely in the mould in which you wish to make it. Right. Um, there are elements, there are episodes that perhaps diverge from that. But overall, I think he was really satisfied with The Prisoner and its longevity and its legacy. And that makes me very happy. I love that I have loved this thing for 20 years. I love that it's part of my relationship and my marriage and my experience and part of my growing up. It's a show that's always been there for me to come back to. I've introduced so many friends to it. I've watched it with people and sat up late in the night in the pub with the theories and the talking and all of the different things. And it never diminishes. It never lessens. Nothing changes it. There are plenty of other shows where you'll find out something about the creator or something will happen or something will happen in the world that makes it harder to watch. But but nothing has ever changed The Prisoner to date. And that is a great thing. Mm. Abby, I love listening to you talk about it. It just It's so joyful. I love it. It it just it it really lights up the best bits of my brain. It really does. I'm. It's been a pleasure and a privilege to talk about it a bit more. And and I, yeah, it's lovely to revisit. It's. I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. I did. I really did. Is there anything else that we need to talk about the prisoner? I mean, we've been talking. This is probably going to be our longest episode ever. So. <laughs> Sorry, so many feelings. <laughs> is there anything we haven't touched on? <laughs> hard to imagine at this time <laughs> well, well I, the question I'd like to ask I think and uh, and um, Mandy I'm sorry I know I normally ask you a question here that's fine but I'm, totally I'm going to ask Miss AES um, <laughs> Mrs AES you're doing a podcast on this yes and it's you and your wife talking episode by episode I would imagine also with some tangents yes. off to talk about specific topics or theories that's right how different are her views on the show and the theories and all the elements of it to yours? Surprisingly so. Okay, good. We good, have good, good. had 20 years of hashing this out, often like right there. But you've not homogenized <laughs> through that. No. Awesome. And, and I think, I mean, I, I think that's one of my favorite and most de- defining characteristics of my relationship is that for people who've known each other since they were 12, 13 years old, we are astonishingly different. Um, and even all our shared experiences, we tend to bring very different experiences too. And the prisoner is is no different. You know, my unifying theory is is not hers. Um, we have very different opinions, very different ideas, and very different interests um, in the show, but are both, I think, equally passionate about it. She loves how much he seems to dislike everything and everyone. Okay. Um, <laughs> which is not something that really factors into it for me. Uh, we, yeah, we we have very considering we've had a, a parallel outlook on the show, and I've also actually watched it a lot more than she has. I really lent into Six as a character, and would I mean I am an obsessive watcher of things. She tends to have a photographic memory; she'll remember it. But I will watch and watch and watch. Um, Living in Harmony, I must have seen, you know, a hundred times easily because I will just watch and watch and watch and I just engage so thoroughly with those things that I enjoy about it. Um, Whereas, yeah, she has a kind of more overall view. She's very into the the village aspect and the way that that ties in. You know, she'll talk about 
Um, the fact that number six has Port Marion pottery in his room. You know, we have a whole section of the podcast where okay. she talks about that kind of element of it and how it integrates with its real life settings and that sort of aspect of it. Uh, whereas for me, I'll just get super, super into how we don't know what number six thinks about this. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's a nice, <laughs> it's a nice uh, separation, I think, that we formulate. Oh, it's going to be so exciting to listen to. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Kind. That's, that's, that's your trailer right there. <laughs> uh, I hope I've sold it. <laughs> but yeah, I hope it lives up to that, let's say. Terrific. Cool. Yeah, thank you for the space to, to discuss something. Um, I'm I'm just so glad it's on your list. As I say, it's something that's only come up a couple of times. You know, I, I mm. am the kind of person where I will talk and talk and talk about the pop culture that I love. But The Prisoner is the one that I rarely get to visit. It's one that people have rarely seen. And um, I think, you see, we, we had a conversation on Twitter and I tagged my friend Dan, who I met very early on when I was at university, and he had also seen The Prisoner. Okay. And he doesn't understand how unusual that is. Even now, he forgets how unusual it is. And we would sit there and kind of watch bootleg copies of the show and be excited about it and theorize about these things because we're philosophy students and that's what you do um and and that was a joy but it was a rare joy i have very rarely met people in my life with whom i can have these conversations out loud as opposed to on the internet so (laughs) this is nice if you would like to join the conversation you can use the hashtag pc deprived on twitter you can find us on twitter facebook and instagram at eloquent gushing or you can send us an email at podcast at eloquentgushing.com you can find each of us on twitter i'm at mandy k and i'm at matthew vose abby thank you so much for joining us uh can you tell us where people can find you and about your podcast yeah you can find uh more about our podcast at prisoneresque that's prisoner E-S-Q-U-E dot com. Um, and you can find me at this A-E Shaw, S-H-A-W, on Twitter. Uh, it's been a pleasure and a privilege to talk about something I love so much with two of my favorite podcasters. Thank you for having me. Oh. Oh, thank you. No, it's, it, this has been a lot of fun. And like very clearly, we could be going a couple of hours more. <laughs> I think clearly. we should. But... This is definitely, you know, Mandy, if you have a round two, if you want to come back to this. And when you come back to Blade Runner, call me. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Pop Culture Deprived is 100% funded by listeners like you through our Patreon page. Anything you can give, even $1 a month, gives access to exclusive content and helps to support the network and develop new shows. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And don't forget to find other shows, visit our homepage eloquentgushing.com. We'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where we'll talk about Christmas with the Cranks. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And I am the new number two. Pop Culturally Deprived is an eloquent gushing production. For more information, go to eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at eloquentgushing.